Hey everyone, it's Michael. In this episode, Courtney, Stefan, and I spoke with the team of Coastal Roots Radio. Reading from their website, Coastal Roots is a network of researchers, coastal communities, and nonprofit organizations, all united by their mission of supporting verdant, sustainable, and just livelihoods and places. The team at Coastal Roots includes Phil Loring, a former guest of the show, Hannah Harrison, and Emily D'Souza, all at the University of Guelph. Together, they told us about how they combine research and storytelling by finding the podcast in the work, in their words. This was a special episode in that each of the teams asked each other questions about their own podcasting project. So Courtney and Stefan and I got a chance to share our own thoughts about the Finding Sustainability podcast as well. Hope you enjoy. So we're here today with the Coastal Roots Gang. I don't know what you all want to call yourselves really, but we'll start with that. So I thought just to, to get going, and we can do it on the on the finding sustainability side first, maybe just a round of introductions. Everyone, who you are, where you're currently living, where you might normally be living, favorite pets. Stefan, you want to get going? Sure. Yeah, I'm Stefan. I'm living in Germany at the moment. I'm originally from the United States, grew up in California, but I did my PhD and I'm now doing a postdoc in Germany at the Leibniz Center for Tropical Marine Research in Bremen. And most of my work is focused on natural resource governance. I'm a social scientist, political science PhD, but I look a lot at collective action issues. I look at sustainability and social ecological systems analysis, mostly in small scale fisheries and aquaculture. I never had pets growing up. I would say then I'd pick a marine animal. Let's go with a turtle. So I'll jump in. So I'm Courtney Hammond-Wagner. I'm a postdoc at Stanford in a group called Water in the West. And as that name alludes to, I study water, some water and agriculture, I'd say two governance questions. I'm really interested in how policy shapes behavior. So linking questions of policy design and institutional design with behavioral questions, behavior change. And let's see, my favorite pet will probably speak on this podcast. Her name is Skookum and she is present in the room. Wow. All right. (laughs) She's a dog. I should say that. She's a dog. (laughs) All right, so yeah, I'm Michael Cox. I'm a professor here at Dartmouth in the Environmental Studies program. I study a lot of the same stuff that <laughs> Stefan and Courtney mentioned, compost resources, mostly in the Dominican Republic recently. And then, yeah, as of about a year ago, working on this podcast, which has been a lot of fun as an alternative medium, something that's felt more creative. So I've been very fulfilling. So yeah, we can head over to you all now. Hannah, if you want to start. Sure. My name is Hannah Harrison. I am uh, a postdoc at the University of Guelph in the Coastal Roots Lab. I'm working with Dr. Philip Loring, and my background is very much in kind of commercial fisheries. My PhD was all about hatcheries, small-scale hatcheries, usually those that are voluntarily operated in uh, Western Europe, in Norway, Wales, and Germany. And I came over to work on the Coastal Roots Project as part of my postdoc and have found that Ontario is also a place of hatcheries. And since then, I've kind of expanded those interests into the human dimensions of Great Lake commercial fisheries, on which there's just been very little research over the past. So that's an exciting kind of new frontier to look at. And uh, right now, we're kind of in the process of building those relationships and uh, looking at the ways that the commercial fleets have adapted to significant ecological, political, and policy change over the, the last century or so. <laughs> yeah, so and this podcast has been a really interesting way to kind of actually foster some of those relationships. So that'll be interesting to talk about. Mm, cool, thanks. I can go next. 
So my name is Emily. I'm a master's student. I'm also working with Dr. Phil Loring. Um, I'm originally from Guelph. I did my undergraduate degree here as well in environmental governance and always like had a passion and interest in issues about ocean conservation and marine policy. And I met Phil and we kind of landed on food systems and seafood and just my background. I'm from a European Portuguese background. And so seafood's always been a huge part of my life and trying to figure out, you know, how we could how we could continue to eat seafood in a way that you know supported marine ecosystems, supported local fishermen and the communities that my family comes from. And so my research right now is looking at alternative seafood networks and kind of the different ways that seafood harvesters in North America are experimenting with getting fish to consumers. And now in the wake of everything that's going on, kind of how all of that is being changed and kind of exacerbated and just as people try to adapt and, and find new ways to yeah keep eating seafood and supporting fishermen. So and the podcast has been interesting as a student. I found it very helpful in the wake of, you know, things being so crazy and uncertain and not really having a steady footing with a lot of our like research and data collection plans being kind of just turned on their heads. I feel like this has really given me some solid footing and like grounding and so it's been really helpful from that perspective as well. Yeah, and I'm I'm Phil Loring. I'm an associate professor at the University of Guelph. I also hold the Errol Chair in Food Policy and Society at the Errol Food Institute in Guelph. And yeah, I'm a I'm an anthropologist. My my work focuses on food systems, sustainable food systems, and uh, in a couple of areas, generally food systems resilience, the interactions between ecosystem health and human well-being, and conflict over shared resources generally and with respect to food systems. And so right now that involves the research that Hannah um, mentioned that we're developing in the lakes, coastal routes more broadly, which is about coastal community food systems and resilience and, and sort of facilitating both storytelling and make, creating connections between people and communities so they can learn from each other. And also some research on conflict over agricultural water management um, in the prairie region as just sort of a scan of some of the things. Yeah. All right, cool. So now we're all familiar with each other. So as I mentioned to Hannah, a question I was interested in hearing y'all talk about to kind of segue into the items that you mentioned is kind of how this all got started. So I'm, I'm aware that there is the Coastal Roots Project, there is Coastal Roots Radio, and then I, to me, it's kind of this series of concentric circles. I don't know if that's the right way to think about it. And then the, you know, the inner core is like the Social Fistencing Podcast, which is now, you know, several, many episodes in. So I'd love to hear, you know, from all of you, like, how is that correct? That this kind of like scaffold on itself and how did, how did each level start? Well, I can start with some background on the impetus for Coastal Roots. Coastal Roots is funded from a really interesting source of funding in, at the federal level in Canada called Partnership or Partnership Development Grants from the Social Science and Humanities Research Council in Canada. And what's really unique about them, which is why I applied was that while they do support research, they're not about research. They're about creating and developing partnerships. And there's a whole, within that, there's a whole stream for knowledge mobilization, partnership development grants. And that is how Coastal Roots receives the most of its funding right now. It's got some funding through other lines as well. But the goal really was, after working in coastal communities in a number of different places in the world and seeing how powerful and effective it was to get people together so they could tell each other their stories and share and collaborate and learn. The goal was to try to facilitate that more broadly across coastal regions in North America at first and then internationally. And so what you see now is sort of the what over the last couple two years plus that Hannah and myself and Emily and others have and our partners have sort of built. It's sort of a it's been an organic 
process to sort of identifying what our programs are and social distancing is is a really great example. Hannah, do you want to go from there? Yeah. So so uh, actually, when Phil originally wrote the grant, and we and he was talking about some of the different kind of outputs that would come from the partnership grant, and the the ways that we would show that we've been able to build these networks. One of those things was part of I think like the knowledge mobilization piece of the grant structure overall, and that. Uh, part of that came as, well, well, let's make a podcast and tell some of the stories and really elevate what we're hearing in a lot of these coastal communities about how they are dealing with these different aspects of resilience. And when we actually started getting the project underway, we found that it didn't seem quite clear how how we were going to start capturing those stories. And we eventually we were thinking like, okay, we got to kind of sort this out. And then we had a conversation where we said, you know, it seems like if we want to highlight really powerful stories, then those stories need to be there and we shouldn't kind of force them to be there. So we we said to ourselves, let's let's kind of wait and find the podcast in the work as as we go about it. And, you know, it will it will become apparent when it's time, I think, to, to challenge that. And, and one of the things we actually did in the meantime, which is a little bit to the side, but is we started Pubcasts, which are publication podcasts, and that's where we do abridged and annotated readings of um, peer-reviewed work. And that was kind of a cool opportunity. We didn't really realize it at the time, I think, but it was a cool opportunity to get some practice behind the mic <laughs> and develop our rapport as a team um, and how we were going to manage editing and recording and, and putting together these kind of longer form readings. And so that was a, a nice way to get started. And then when COVID came about, it, I, I just I recall having another conversation after a lab meeting and saying like, hey, it sounds like we're, we might need to go work from home. Is this kind of the opportunity, the way that we can work together as a lab and have students doing like bringing in their individual work and expertise and and be able to talk about something that's happening right now and in as you, all of you know like that's kind of a rare moment especially in kind of human dimensions work to follow something as it happens to to really get to see it unfold week to week and have those connections and and fortunately we had attended the local catch summit so local catch is an important partner within the coastal roofs project and our partner there Joshua Stoll at the University of Maine was had invited us to to that summit and Emily and I got to go and and we met a lot of folks who are already in the fisheries. And so we had those connections kind of in our back pocket at the time. And then as the podcast came up, we said, hey, you know, we have these initial interviews from pre-COVID. Let's check in with them and see how things are going. Like what's what's happened in like this crazy first few weeks of as society really shut down. And that was, that just became very naturally, wow, these are some amazing stories. We should, this is, I think this is the beginning of our podcast. So, but I think to your point, Michael, it's, it is kind of a, a series of circles. I, went, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily all nested within each other so much as kind of rings off of the same uh, core set of ideas around knowledge mobilization and storytelling. And of course, uh, this, the research and partnership development components. Mm. So the, I had forgotten about the pubcasts, actually. So that's really interesting. I mean, it's, I imagine it's kind of challenging to make a PDF sound as interesting as like Harry Potter does. Wildly challenging, I would say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the first few I was like, you know, I could listen to my own voice all day, but this is not very interesting. We need to come up with a way to make this a little bit more compelling. And so that I think that was, it was actually really helpful later to have done that process because as you, especially when Phil and I would record together, we'd sit there and have the, the experience of saying, 
Man, we really took a lot of space to say this basic thing. I guess we could just summarize that now. <laughs> so, but now I have the chance to say it differently and, and represent what I did say in the paper in a way that's a little bit more compelling for a listening audience. <laughs> I mean, that makes me think that this would be like a therapeutic process for any academic to like have to read out loud their own writing and kind of have that cringe Or, or torture, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God, I spent two pages on, on that. Yeah. I mean, it's been, Yeah. Yeah, that's the abridging portion really came into play there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will say, and, I, and I'd be interested in Stefan and Courtney's responses here too, that as I've, edit, every time I edit, it, edit an interview, I have similar, they're not kind of cringing moments where I'm like, oh, that's like one of my verbal tics where I say this or I say that. And you, it really sensitizes you to, to your own behavior to actually have to engage with your own output in general. And it's been, I mean, for me, it's been helpful. It's, it's helped me kind of train myself on how I want to sound after I hear it. I can jump in on that and that, you know, I'm newer to the podcast, so I'm, I'm still working through those initial ticks, I think, that Michael mentioned. But the thing that surprised me was just how much intention goes up front into thinking about what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. I hadn't really processed how much energy that takes to put in, in advance of doing a podcast or doing interviews, you know, it's so different than doing research where you have your semi-structured protocol and you can kind of look to that for comfort. And it's something that I was thinking about as you were talking, Hannah, how you were saying that there's these, well, maybe this was Michael's concentric circles, but it seems like you have pulling from interviews that were a part of research that are also being pulled into this podcast. I'm curious what that experience is like for you and whether you feel a difference and whether you're interviewing for research or interviewing for podcasts. And if I don't want to say this in a negative way, like double dip, because I think that has a negative connotation, but use what is it like to use the same interview material for both? Or do you? Yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, deciding whether Phil was going to jump in there for me. Yeah, I, I completely uh, relate to everything you've just said that, well, first, I want to comment on like the kind of getting used to yourself that that has been a actually enjoyable learning experience between the three of us, because we all have quite different voices and quite different speaking styles. And uh, I have a background in radio, so it was quite helpful for me. I, I, I essentially, I was used to listening to myself drone on, as you can tell. And it was helpful to kind of bring in that experience. But then doing it as a team, especially over Zoom, is really a challenge that, that we've had to work together. But I, I have really enjoyed that process because I think it's, it's been you know, some very laugh-worthy moments and some good team building around just learning something new together, learning a skill. In terms of the, the research aspect of that, I, I know Phil and, and Emily will probably have comments on this as well, but I have found it extremely gratifying for maybe lack of a better word, particularly with qualitative work. I feel that we often spend a lot of time having, in my case, often very lengthy interviews with folks. And it's, uh, you, I'm used to doing interviews in person. So doing things over Zoom or over the phone is definitely, it's a very different experience and it's quite challenging to, I think, build that same relationship with people and really get the same feel for the, the depth and the richness of the, of the details that they share with you. And with the podcast, it's been a challenge because you, you know, you turn on the recorder and you're trying to help people say things in hopefully a little bit more succinct of a way because you're trying to make this into a time sensitive audio piece. Whereas with a, a regular interview, I, you know, go to town and like talk as long as you want because I'm, I'm, I'll help guide you, but I'm really interested to hear all of your thoughts. So there are, there are, it, it is a slightly different interview in comparison to, I guess, what I've done in the past. But on the other hand, it's, it's really wonderful to get to 
kind of tell those stories as they're happening. And it's a different way of engaging with the data and with the interview material than I have done, than I, than I guess what I've done in, in regular research, so to speak, but in, you know, in like PhD work, because you, there you collect and you collect, and then you kind of go back and start to listen, or at least that's traditionally been how I've approached things. And in this one, we're, we're every week we revisit the material that we've, we've been listening to, and we listen to each other's interviews. And it's, I feel like I have such a more intimate relationship with all of this data than even if it's many different discrete stories than I've had in the past where I've kind of had the field work experience and the, the relationship came from being there with people. And then you go back and you listen again. And then, you know, maybe you do your coding or your analysis. So it's, it is, it's quite different. And I, I love the double dipping. I think it makes it, you know, I also, I'm also a little nervous about this term, but <laughs> I think it, it is, it's somehow, it feels stronger. It feels uh, much more kind of timely and urgent and like we're able to address things as they happen. And yeah, that's been great. I don't know, Phil, I'm sure you have things to add. I was going to say that it's worth noting that there is a, a very structured research ethics protocol around how we're doing it that we don't need to get into now, but it has been a consideration. How do we have these interviews and also engage with some of the same people on the podcast and, and navigate the, the sort of tensions between a research paradigm that wants to be confidential and an anonymized and something public facing, which is something we're reflecting on as we go. But it does remind me there's a, a, an ethnographer, Henry Glassy, who wrote in Passing Time in Valley Manon, he wrote, the most violent thing you can do to your research partners is take their names away from what they said, is, was his opinion. And I've always, I, I, I've always kept that thought in the back of my mind, but nowhere have I felt it more than now and seeing how vested people are and how much of them is in the things they're sharing. But at some point, I was going to suggest that Emily could speak to that question too about the experience of the interviews, because she, Emily, you've done so many of them. And more maybe than the rest of us have been doing the check-ins with the same people over and over, which is a very different way than just the one sit-down interview, right? Yeah, yeah. And I was going to say that, like, building off what Hannah said, too. It's been, I mean, admittedly, I'm a first-year master's student, so I actually haven't done the, I guess, traditional academic interview protocol yet. Uh, this is just my only interview experience. But yeah, the three of us spoke about it earlier this week or, or last week, where I was saying, like, it, the relationships, like, yeah, despite the fact they're over Zoom, like, the way they've evolved over the last few months, being able to check in with people on a regular basis. And I know like we started talking to people and, you know, I would kind of hit record and we would jump in and do this like 30 minute interview and then jump back off. And now I'm finding myself like spending half an hour before the interview and, you know, people are telling me about their kids and their lives and like what they did this weekend. And it's a lot more personal. And I think the quality of the interviews has improved as a result. And I'd like to think that my interview style has also improved as a result, just getting more comfortable and yeah, being able to like just connect with people on that personal level and also like, yeah, checking in week to week, like just seeing how things um, are changing and how people are responding. And I think that was what I was getting at when I was saying that this has been a really like grounding and like comforting experience, having these going back to them week to week mm -hmm. and being able to like look at them in real time and not just collecting them and going back. It's been just really like, yeah, grounding in the personal relationship aspect, I think has been super rewarding for me as well. I'm curious to kind of turn the tables on that question and hear from, from you all about your own experiences, sort of the way that you connect with people and, 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 and whatnot. Well, maybe, can I hop in on just one? I just wanted to reflect on Phil, that quote you um, shared is really powerful. And it, when Hannah, you were saying that how I, I just had that experience where, you know, I've sit, I sit through these hours of interviews 
And then later you, you try to pull a quote, you know, and it's like, you want to pull a page, but you can only pull a couple sentences and then it's not their voice and it, you don't hear, hear the way they express it. And I just think that's, it's really powerful to be able to do that on a podcast. So Michael, I'll pass it to you. Oh, I thought you were going to just go right in and answer the other part of the question. Okay. No, I'm going to let you go okay. for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I've, I know I've said this is several times is for me, it's been, it's been the single most gratifying to use Hannah's now word aspect of the project is it's, it's the human connection, right? It's the ability to hear people's stories and to get into these spaces where you're just kind of talking and connecting with someone that I feel like I had gotten away from in some of my own work where, you know, it, it's, it's large N and each respondent ultimately is represented as a row in a spreadsheet that you're going to analyze statistically. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. If, you know, if you want to satisfy certain scientific values, that's what, that's the approach that's good to take. But I had really, it becomes kind of a grind, you know, and also I had stopped doing most of the interviewing myself. I would work with local technicians, local partners, et cetera, and they would be doing almost in all of the interviewing and I would maybe do a couple of key informant interviews. And so for me, it was the way that I described it is getting back to what felt like artisanal interviewing, right? So less productive is less industrial to use all these words that we know we think are bad to really feel more of the human connection and va and get, you know, because I've also struggled with this within academia, the, the productivist approach to academia and research that it's, we're just, we're obliged to just crank out more and more PDFs. There's just this academic arms race. And I feel like there's this really great book called The Slow Professor, whose two authors, like, of course, I can't remember, but it's a really wonderful book about how we all need to kind of slow down and be more invested in the next article and not have it be just a, the next one on the production line onto your CV and onto your Google Scholar page. And so for me, this was an example of that larger process of how do I slow down? How do I actually make connections with folks? Because I don't want this to get to a point where I'm like, oh, we just got to our 100th episode. Let's, let's, when do we get to our 150th, right? It's I want to actually take the time to value each conversation as this is the cheesiest thing I'll say today is kind of like a work of art, right? It's like something you're crafting together and then you, you value it because it's something you spent time making. It's not just, you know, at the next line item. And so that's, well, I mean, that's really what's kept me going on this project for sure. You know, Michael, you said something there about like not doing a lot of like your own interviewing in, in projects just because of all of the reasons that you've just talked about. And that's something actually we've talked about a little bit briefly a while ago with Phil, just the way that we've kind of divided the labor over this podcast is Emily and I tend to do a lot of the interviewing and Phil is responsible for a tremendous amount of the production. And each one has kind of its own heaviness to, to take care of. But I, I know that that's been like something we've had that we've talked about of just feeling the connection to the people in the podcast um, when you're not doing the interview. I don't know if you have feelings about that, Phil, you'd want to talk about. Yeah, well, I can certainly relate to the, to the feeling of sort of change associated with not being the pr primary interviewer in research in general. That's because that's one of the, one of the best parts um, of the job, I think, when when you get to do it. But yeah, engaging with them in a different way. I mean, you know, I, I think back to our episode on resilience, which was pretty heavy, one of the earlier ones where we were hearing sort of how people were coping with a lot of bad news, losing community members and so forth. And when you're editing that, you're hearing this, these stories and these words over and over and over again. And, it, and that was, and as an ethnographer who's already had sort of heightened empathy because that's the job. Uh, that, was, that was quite interesting, quite difficult. And it made it hard to know what to cut. Again, do you take the ums or do you shorten the pauses between words? Because, you know, sort of the, what Nora Bateson calls the warm data, because that's where the affect is. And that's what the, that's where the emotion is, is the pause or the, right. And, and that was, I wrote a, 
a whole big long after that episode, I wrote a big giant two or three page journal um, entry about that experience and the dilemma of deciding when to cut a pause out or a breath or an, and even if that was doing violence to the, the story that, that the person was sharing. So it's very interesting in different way to sort of be engaging with, with interview material. Yeah. Stefan and Courtney, do you have any additional thoughts about Phil's question? Sure. Well, Michael and I had discussed in the beginning, if we would think about using the content somehow in an analytical way and to, to somehow write something about it or analyze it some more, more formally like you would from an academic perspective. But we, we haven't really done that yet, I think, because there's been other things which have emerged from it that have produced a lot of value, like the human connection aspect of it. And, and for me, the, the question when we started the podcast was really more about how do we build community in science more effectively? And there's a lot of the research that we do is study community. There's a lot of literature, the natural resource governance and sustainability realm, which points to the community as a, the meaningful level of social analysis. And I think that can be easily reflected and applied back to our own communities and science. But it seems to me that science, to some extent, struggles in building community within itself. I think we have and tend to have very strong communities locally. So within our working group or department, uh, perhaps those who we interact with most frequently but we have such a large international and network community, which is more or less disaggregated and, and spread around the world. And, and one aspect of science careers is that people move often uh, between where you did your education and where you get your, your jobs as you, as you move forward, which, which makes building community difficult. And also the, the formal means through which we connect in science through paper writing being being one of the main ones, it, it removes a lot of the meaningful personality, as you mentioned before, the people behind the science. It, it removes a lot of that, which is necessary for community building to understand who actually had those thoughts, what their ideas were and how they came to be. And, and a lot of the struggles and the challenges and the doubts and the decisions that went into that are, are, are removed and intransparent and rather blind in science and how we communicate formally. So, I mean, the podcast then for me was about, can, can this, this new digital tool, can that be a new way to, to kind of put the person back to, to build that community within science a little bit stronger through new mechanisms, which are not reading, which are not the formal ways. And I think that's, that's for me been the most rewarding part of it to see if that's successful or not, to see if we can really meet new people and connect with someone online and to see that in relation to the question about the editing or not, that science is a messy process of, of lots of different thoughts which come in and out and get expressed. And it's a lot about deliberation and having uncertainties. And all of those things are hidden in, in publications. And to, to have conversations which reveal those, which open the door to all of the the conflictions and, and the thoughts which you have and the process of actually making something uh, like a PDF in the end or a published paper is so, it's not portrayed in the way that it really is in reality. The way that it is on a daily basis and, and how it is in your own mind and how it is in the discussions in your working group, that's not portrayed to the outside world at all. And I think the podcast can, I hope, open a window at least, at least a sliver of light into seeing how, how those how real people do science. Stefan, I love what you just said. And just to build on that, I think one of the things that the podcast has been to me that I didn't expect, or, or maybe it's just an element of it that surprised me, was that it's really different interviewing other researchers who are used to being the interviewers or used to being on the other side. They're not used to being the focus of an interview. And it's really funky to navigate that space that you just said, Stefan, about 
you know, we're trained to present ourselves in a certain way. We're trained to only give so much and we're trained to keep the focus on specific details, you know, because that's what we do so well in papers. That's what we do so well in, in interviews with media and sound bites. So to get beyond that is really tricky space to navigate because you want, you want to build rapport and you want to be, you want to have a genuine conversation, but we're also not trained to navigate that space as researchers. So it's been a really cool opportunity to have those conversations and to start getting into more of that realness. And I think that's one thing that really attracted me to being a part of this podcast was hearing Stefan and Michael's conversations with researchers and, and, and being able to, to relate to researchers in a way that I hadn't felt before, you know, and being able to see myself in that position in a way that I hadn't before. So I think it's a really cool opportunity to have those conversations and start to see more of the whole researcher that we're trained so well to hide. Yeah, I have I found that like, you know, at, at the end of a, a lot of my favorite, I know like when I've done a good interview, when the person says, oh, that was a nice opportunity to reflect on things that I don't normally think about about myself, right? It's like, well, yeah, that's great. It's a little professional therapy service that we're offering for free here to each guest. Hannah, you mentioned, yeah, go oh, ahead. I, I, if you had another question in this line, I, I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you choose your topics, how you recruit the folks that you feature on the podcast. Because like, obviously you talk about sustainability, but uh, you know, some of the topics do kind of step away from like what I think people would consider immediate sustainability issues and, and just how you, I guess your process and how you arrive at, at the, the full episodes you have. Yeah, well, I think we can say it's it's rather bottom up and organic, both of those in quotes, maybe. I mean, it's so it's been a combination. I mean, for me, I will say so far, it's been who do I want to talk to? There's lots of interesting people in the world. And, you know, you meet a bunch of them. So if I, I have like, we have a shared list of people that we'd like to talk to. And for the folks for me that are on there, it's folks that I've met and, and just would love to hear more from in a, in, a, in a way that you don't really get to in the regular conference, right? Because you're just busy being busy. So that's been a big process for me. I think Stefan's been better at reaching out to folks that we don't have immediate contact with. And I, it's something that a, a discourse that we've been developing is also thinking about getting a diversity of guests, et cetera, because you're always going to have, you know, if, if it's only folks we know, then you have the bias of homophily and the fact that you tend to know other people like you and with your experiences, et cetera. And so that's something I would say we're working on to kind of branch out. And again, Stefan, I feel like you've been doing more of that than I have in terms of, oh, this person looks interesting. I don't know them. So I would say overall, it's, it's felt like it's, it's, we're deciding, we're, we're selecting to try to invite people as opposed to certain topics in my own mind. It's, oh, this person looks interesting. Let's talk to them as opposed to, okay, now we need to talk to someone who studies agriculture. Now we need to study, talk to someone who studies climate change. It's been, well, this person's interesting. What do they happen to study? Because if they're interesting, they're interesting. And everything else kind of takes care of itself. Yeah, I would agree. We, we, I, I tend to think about it as, as people-focused, as individual-focused, not on topical focuses or focus. And yeah, it's, it's really just, a, I think we didn't have a clear strategy from the beginning. I think it's, it's clear we, we invited people we knew from in some of the earlier episodes to kind of test the test the grounds and test the waters a little bit about how the podcast project would go in general and folks you know we could get into a, a decent conversation with already but reaching out to to people we didn't know has really been wonderful as well there's been a lot of really great guests uh, we've had on who I, I, I'd never met before and they were just they were willing to have a conversation and you know, the, the struggle is if you've never met the person before, can you get into a space where you can open up a little bit about your thoughts uh, and remove a little bit of those those barriers of having to try to present yourself in a perfect way, or which you mentioned, Courtney, as well, which, which is, I think, a difficulty in academia. 
that there's this need to try to present yourself as very clear thoughts in a very perfect and clear way when I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I think when I think of a podcast as being successful is when I've gotten to what I call the, the insight point. And that's somewhat why we have the two different formats of our podcast the insights and the shorter ones, which are just clips from the longer episodes, where it gets to a kind of a natural point where you almost forget that you're there having the conversation and the person, you get to a point where they're talking very naturally about something which they think about a lot and they have a very deep knowledge about that. And they usually it's a longer a question which leads to a longer answer from the guest because they, they tend to think about that. And that's what I call an, an, an insight. And if, if we get to there in a podcast, that's, that's a pretty successful one because it's difficult to, you, it takes some minutes to get past those informalities and to get to break the, the perfectionism of, of trying to speak perfectly. So, yeah. so Stefan, you just made me think of like several things at once. We did an interview together recently and I remember having this thought where we got to one of these insight points and I think I texted you and I just said, oh, this is going great. And I remember thinking in my mind, like, okay, we just need to not mess this up because this guest is just like carrying us exactly. through this episode. The insight idea, I think, has become pretty powerful for us. And it reminds me, Hannah, of something you said earlier today. And I've got it like capitalized in my notebook here, finding the podcast and the work, which relates to also relates to this connection between the podcast and the research in my mind, right? Because it's and it's this idea that you don't want to the underlying principle seems to be you can't really force things, right? You can't force yourself into an insight point, as we call it. You can't force yourself into a podcast episode that's interesting. And so for us, we've had this developing conversation of how, how do you get to those points? Because, and I don't want to make everything into like a governance question about whether you want to be bottom up or top down, but that's just where my brain goes, right? But it's, but it's this question of like, how much control do you exert as like the interviewer over the conversation versus how much do you kind of let things happen? And there is this kind of funny dance as the interviewer of, okay, how do I help us get on this path of things where we're going to get some interesting nuggets? And so I love that the way you describe it as like finding a podcast in the work. And to me, that was a connection to our own discourse about these insight points and how do you get to them is you can't force it. You can't be like, okay, we're going to get to insight point by 35 minutes in and it's going to be about this topic. Like we never predict. That it, you were, you were, your comments there remind me of a little bit of kind of a phenomenon we've seen occur in the in the production of each episode. So a little bit in the weeds, but each week we have like a, a Thursday planning meeting essentially where we talk about the script or we talk about what's missing or, or what we still need or those details. And then Friday morning we record the next day. And I have been surprised over and over how we'll usually we'll have a, sele a selection, a series of interviews that we've already chosen and that we've pulled timestamps from and we're preparing to, to now do the, the narration around them. And that as whoever has been usually there's a, a point person on the script and then us, you know, supporting writing as well. But that person will come in and say, you know, I'm kind of just not quite sure what the narrative is or what the, the point is this week. You know, we've got some great themes, but I haven't quite found that that's the story. And, and as we talk about it, even in those, those Thursday meetings can be quite short, 20 minutes or something. But well, as we talk about it, all of a sudden in just relaying to the rest of the team, what we loved about the interview or what we really saw as important, suddenly some of the most fantastic parts of the story just become really apparent. And I think that that's kind of part of the finding the podcast in the work, but it's also in finding it in our team and in reflecting off each other, what it is in each interview that, that really stood out. And, you know, there's, there's, I think more to how we select the interviews to include to begin with, but that 
that process of working with the team and finding like those insights of through through that collaboration has been really cool and, and reminds me of what you've just been talking about. So yeah, I mean, it feels like you're building the narrative again, like from the bottom up, would you say? It's kind of kind of come out of the work. I, I was just thinking that maybe a better um, description would be that it's a, it's somewhat emergent that, you know, we, you know, if, if this was us wanting to write and tell a story, like I think back to when we were first thinking about a podcast and we had a list on a whiteboard of, of episodes of stories, right? Like that would have been sort of the, the prescriptive, the a priori here's stories we're going to tell about seafood and coastal communities. This has been more about sort of the process of building the relationship and having conversations with these people and then sort of relying on each other to recognize emergent stories. And so bottom up in sort of in a conceptual sense, but more as a sort of a, just a pro, uh, an outcome of the practice of listening to people. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I'd, I'd add to that by saying that we're, we're kind of tuned into several different channels throughout the team. So often we will, so we keep like a, a running list of news articles and headlines that we see just pop up on our various personal news feeds every week. And Emily very kindly <laughs> keeps track of all of those for us. And so we'll post those in our in our Slack chat, which is where we do most of our, our discussion and, and back and forth. And it's funny how I, I feel Emily and I often say like, oh, wow, look at this headline, you know, such and such just happened. And then you know, we each have a couple interviews scheduled that week. And after each interview, we tend to get on Slack and be like, wow, what a great interview. Oh man, that one really nailed it. You got to go listen to it. And be like, they talked about that thing we saw in the article. And it's, it really seems to almost be like the, the news tends to be waypoints either just before or just after we are hearing those same things from individuals on the ground. And it really almost helps us kind of see what are people talking about and reading about right now that is interesting within the, the concepts of seafood and COVID and, and how, what story do we hear from you know, the individuals in this very personal way that we can then add to that conversation. Mm. So you might all resist this question. I, don't, I mean, you can also turn it back to us. Is, have there been, this is kind of like the highs and lows question, right? So are there moments when you've had a, just a feeling of, okay, this is why I'm doing this. This is what fulfills me. This is why I got out of bed in the morning to do this kind of thing. And what are those? And I'm also trying to think about how I'm going to answer this question. And on the other side, right? Like what is some of the times where it's like, okay, this is actually a struggle. Like I believe in this, but like today is hard. I'd love to hear Emily answer that question. Yeah, I mean, the the why I get out of bed, the highs come to mind right away. There's like one one regular interview that I have that I remember being nervous about in the beginning because I was unfamiliar with like their geographic area and they're from an indigenous community and that's not something that I like have expertise in. And I was very like nervous about offending somebody or saying the wrong thing. And I wasn't entirely sure how to navigate the situation. And it has very quickly become my like favorite person to talk to every single week. And like why I like get out of bed and like think it's so rewarding is just like, I think we spoke about this last week too, like how appreciative our interviews are of what we're doing as well. And like, so when we're done talking to them and, you know, I'll always say like, oh, is there anything else you want to add? And they say, you know, I'm just so grateful that you're doing this. And like, thank you for giving me the opportunity. And I think like that really hits home for me that they're like, I don't know, really getting value out of it and meaning just being able to yeah like have that connection and overcome those like anxieties that I had and like build this personal connection with somebody who's like grateful for the work that we're doing it's been super yeah rewarding and I think it just makes like all the hard work and the keeping track of all those articles worth it I'm trying to think I don't I don't know if I've had any points where it's been 
challenging. I think some of the like storylines we've tried to pull have maybe been contradictory to what I like personally believe. And that's been difficult to kind of hear points that I might not necessarily agree with and then have to like take a step back and be like, wait, what is going on? Like everything I thought I knew is different, but I think that's also been an interesting learning experience as well. We could turn that around to you and hear sort of the same, the highs and lows of, of yours. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, I could say a few words to that. I always get really excited because we are often having a combination of either Michael and I or the three of us or one of us on the podcast. And if I do one alone and publish it, maybe Michael hasn't even heard it until it's published and it's the same for theirs. Sometimes Michael will publish an episode and I'll see it in my podcast feed. I know he's going to publish it, but I'll see it pop up in my podcast feed and I get really excited because ideally I would have started the project, got other people to do all the interviews so I could be a guest 100% of the time and just enjoy the conversations and be a listener. And I I really enjoy that. And I really, when I'm listening to the episodes that I wasn't a part of, I realize that I personally, I I get a lot of benefit from listening to those conversations. I think that's really, that's been really nice and and motivating to try to, to do better in the podcast. The low, the low the low points are are more about is this project too much of a self-serving project? I think that's where I'm really getting the low points at saying, you know, why did we really start this podcast? Is this is is it redrawing too much attention to ourselves by doing this podcast? I I hope we're not doing that at all. I hope we're trying to, and I think with our format, we mostly formatted around trying to put the guest perspective forward more than it is about. It's not a personality show in the sense that we're trying to convey our own opinions too much. Of, of course, they're there. Uh, and I think that's difficult, the self-serving aspect of it. And especially with the question from the original starting point of the podcast being to build a community. And can this, how does, what's our role in that? And just three of us trying to drive that. And can we, can we bring more people into the podcast? Uh, can, can the podcast eventually be something different? Uh, where there's more people interviewing, where it's not so much about uh, our individual personalities. Uh, it, is, it really is a community effort to produce the material that goes into the podcast. Bernie, do you want to say a few things? I know you have to leave in like five minutes. Yeah, I can I can jump on that briefly because I have listened to the podcast much more than I've been a part of it so far because I've just joined now for a few episodes, excited to be doing more. But I can say, you know, sort of what I was reflecting earlier that to me, listening, so Stefan, or Stefan, I would say, I, I don't think you need to worry about the coming from a listener, the, the personality side. It's been, it, it was a really great resource for me. You know, I was starting my postdoc in the fall and feeling really, and some of you might relate to this, that postdoc life can be a little isolating. And so feeling like I had this resource to listen to of others who are approaching research questions and getting these details about, you know, the struggles and the highs and the lows in that research process that nobody talks about unless you get really lucky with your advisor or you have really close colleagues. You know, that's, we often get that in our PhDs. And then you sort of really have to work to build those and keep those going past your PhD. And so it seemed to me like this podcast was a way to provide some of that to people like myself at the time who was struggling to find that community. And so that's what I really hope that I can contribute to as well, is raising some of those issues and experiences and questions that, you know, both highs and lows that we experience as researchers that we just don't often have a venue to talk about. I think the challenge in participating is, or maybe the the lows for me so far and being a part of it is just, I want to have more time to do it. You know, I want this to be more valued as a part of a contribution and have, you know, and it's so cool that you guys have an institutional structure that's supporting what you're doing and getting 
the time and building that in and having this emphasis on knowledge mobilization. So I think, you know, if we can work more towards that, it would be really neat. I was thinking, um, hearing more about sort of reflecting on the, the people and the process and the experiences and the highs and lows. Michael, it reminded me of what you said earlier, this, uh, this the goal of sort of revealing um, the people behind the science and as, as a as a way to better understand or connect to the science and the process, but also the concepts. And that made me sort of want to circle back perhaps to the question of sustainability and thinking about how or wondering how, if and how you, you three see the podcast as being about sustainability or in service to sustainability or so forth. And I, assuming that at least part of that is helping people connect with it better by understanding the people behind it. But I would be curious to hear you guys reflect on that too. And I would just echo what, what Courtney said that the, the very like vulnerable moments in like the PhD or the postdoc where you kind of get to hear like, I don't know, like, or, or talk about in an honest way, like the down and dirty parts of academia and like the things that are hard or that make you question why you do this, that that is not a, a very like supported conversation to have. And that something like your podcast is, is extremely helpful in that. Like I, I, it's funny, I've actually found academic Twitter to be extremely helpful in that. It can also be a mess, but <laughs> there are a lot of really honest conversations being had. There are people who can ask real questions like, is this normal? I am struggling and, and here's why. And like, what do I do? And, and people, everyone's having that experience. And so few people are talking about it in any sort of a genuine way. So yeah, I, com I completely connect to what Courtney said there. Okay. Yeah. It was, I mean, I, I know that Phil, you and I just had a conversation about the, the significance of the word sustainability. I don't think I'm as attached to that word as a lot of people maybe are. I mean, I think it's a fine word. I, I believe in everything that it's significant, like it connotates, but honestly, my experience at the beginning of the podcast was we needed a name and Stefan was kind enough to come up with some names and I thought finding sustainability was fine and he thought it was fine. And that's kind of what we went with. And I think it's, you know, it's one of the things that's really helped, see Courtney, you know, one of the things that's helped us as much as anything is the idea that not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. So like we need a name is a name. And that's a place that I can get stuck in my own mind as well as like, well, you know, we need the perfect name. And Stefan's he heard me hem and haw a little bit about the name over the months. And he's going to continue, fair warning, you're, I'm going to keep doing it. So I'm less concerned about, you know, is everything here about sustainability? I mean, ultimately, I guess my answer would be yes, that if we're not getting, if we're, you know, we are, we are choosing to talk to certain types of folks. I mean, I will say like, you know, I, I interviewed a friend of mine, Carrie Nadell, who's a biologist here at Dartmouth, and, you know, he doesn't study sustainability. He studies collective action among bacteria, you know, so the, the connection there is, is one you have to draw. I, you know, I did try to draw it during the conversation. I was like, well, Carrie, you study bacteria. I study fishers and, and farmers, but what's the difference? You know, they're, they're all going to work together if they want to survive. So here we go. So it hasn't been like a strong organizing principle for me. It's been more about, you know, I want to study human environment interactions, folks. And, and there's a really like a suite of concepts that are just as meaningful to me as sustainability, right? So some of them you and I talked about, Phil, like sense of place, the, the importance that people place on the place where they're from, et cetera. I mean, so that if I had to really pick a foundational idea, it would be more things like that as opposed to this idea of sustainability, which to me sometimes kind of floats in the sky a little bit. Yeah, yeah I can say a word or two about that. I was thinking about the title and what's a good way to build community. 
what is a good boundary object which is more likely to bring people together than to someone to look at a name and say that's not my community sustainability is just one of those very very strong magnets as a boundary object that most people generally would attach to it's not a lot of negative things associated with that term it doesn't have a necessarily exclusionary discourse about it uh, whereas if we went with something related to human environment reaction in, interactions I mean, or resilience maybe interdisciplinarity resilience or interdisciplinarity, those there those are already associated with certain communities. So that was that was one thought that I had. And, and to the to the topics that we talk about on the podcast, it is it is emergent. I like the term that you used to, to describe that. And I think two of them are worth highlighting, which we talk about a lot. And one of them is interdisciplinarity. And I think those two terms and the other one is positionality. And those two terms, I don't think we to some extent, we ask people about that, but they also just emerge as topics that come up. And I think it's representing a little bit about what the what the community uh, of, of all of us scholars struggles with in, in, in our thoughts uh, on a daily basis and interdisciplinary. I think a lot of us struggle with how to work together towards goals in, in science. And we, we, we come up against different ideas and we struggle with even within ourselves to think about what we should do and what, what common goals should be working towards. And interdisciplinarity is a concept which represents that. So it often arises in the podcast, I think. And positionality as well. And that, I think that's also something that our community of scholars struggles with. Where do I fit in this puzzle? What is my role? What is my impact? And whether it's positionality as an interviewer, interviewing a former or its positionality within your organizational structure of your institute. We, I think that's something that everyone can bond over. And that, that's, I think, one reason why it arises a lot in the podcast. Uh, and we don't talk a lot about what sustainability is. I think that's more in terms of the more concrete discourse of it. I think that is, it's implied in a lot of the conversations we have, uh, that people have different perspectives on it. I, I consider myself someone who thinks about that term a lot. But is always the more you think about it, the more you get confused about it. And the reason I think it was in John Dreisick's book where he talks about environmental discourses is that the reason the, the very the contestation over its nature is the reason why it's interesting. And I think sustainability is is one of those terms that the reason why it's interesting is because nobody can agree on, it. and that's why we constantly bound to it. So to add to that, because I. I... There's two other terms now that I'm thinking about it that I think are consistent topics in a lot of our conversations. One is transdisciplinarity, which of course relates to interdisciplinarity. A lot of the guests um, that we've talked to, you know, it, it's a strong part of their value system. And it relates to really this concern about positionality too, right? Because if you try to be a transdisciplinary scientist, it means you're trying to engage in the world in certain ways. You're trying to do some combination of maybe theoretical and applied work. But what kind of what type of person does that make you in the different contexts you find yourself in? Right? Are you a scientist working with farmers? Are you are this other thing? You're you're you know at the end of the day, we're all a lot of things. And so that's been a strong interest of mine to have this extra academic connection. I think we need more of that in academia, but I think it needs to be done thoughtfully. Easier said than done, I guess. And I think that we've talked about this idea implicitly in this conversation today, and it's become, I would argue, a major theme of the podcast, which is essentially invisible work and the difference between legible and, and illegible work. It's really just come up in, I would say, at least half the conversations that I've had with folks. And it's just kind of unavoidable. It's, there's, there's certain types of outputs in work that are more legible than others, and that's really what we see. And I think that's really... A big promise of this type of media is to get, you know, kind of peel back the onion a little bit on, you know, what is what is harder to measure, what is harder to find, what doesn't make it into a PDF. And honestly, I think that's, you know, there's there are podcasts that market themselves this way. Like like I like Freakonomics and the 
what they say in the beginning of every Freakonomics episode is like the invisible parts of all things economic or something. And NPR has a podcast called Invisibilia, right? And so clearly people are, are realizing that this type of medium is good for getting at these harder to measure issues because you can, if, when you can get into this space where it's, you know, let's just, let's just talk about things for a while. So that's become, and that's been fairly emergent. Um, I like that term as well. I wasn't expecting to, to really want to talk about invisible work, not that I didn't want to, but it's just something that you kind of hear over and over again, and it's clearly really important. So I think we go, you know, I go into each interview I lead now with kind of, I would say, four or five of these concepts in mind. I'm kind of just sensitized to their relevance. And so I'm kind of ready to pick up the ball and run with it if it feels like that's where the direction, the, the conversation can go. Yeah, I agree. I, from one perspective, you could say the, the invisible work is most of the real work in academia that doesn't really get conveyed or taught about the thinking process. And in preparing for the interviews, you'll, you'll skim through a guest's profile or maybe you've met them before. And usually that's related to some of their outputs. So you'll see one of their papers. But for me, when I think about what, my, what I think about as an academic most of the time, the papers which I have are really representing a very small portion of what I actually think about all the time. Uh, it, I would even say most of the papers that I have out there don't really represent what I think about at all most of the time in academia. I'm thinking about other issues and they're just the tip of the iceberg and if you can find that with a guest, you, you use those as doors to get into, it, it's maybe one less than 1% of their total thought processes in academic work. And if you can find the right doors to enter into that person's way of thinking, you can hopefully kind of fill in the gaps of the other parts. And I think you can find some pretty interesting avenues towards unpacking a little bit of what that invisible work is. What, what I always think about the question, what do people do on a daily basis? You know, what is the thing that you actually do when you go to work or when you wake up in the morning? What are you thinking about? What are, what are you stressed about? And those, those are not conveyed. And I think those need to be shared a little bit more. I don't know how long we want to go. I did have one question that we had talked about earlier, Michael, is, and, and that's kind of where we see our uh, respective podcasts fitting into kind of the world of science communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, we can start because I was also interested in hearing you all talk about that as well, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose I'll end up reiterating at least to some extent what Stefan said is that I think this, it's about community building, right? It's about giving this network of folks that think about humans and the environment a chance to get to know each other a little bit better. So, I mean, there is some science communication aspects to that because, yeah, I mean, I like, Stefan, your, your doors metaphor as well. I mean, we use kind of the legible outputs that someone has as the initial entree into a discussion with them. So you do talk about some of their science. And I would say that the there's a, off the top of my head, I would say there's a fairly even mix of like discussion about someone's person, like their own personal journey and their, and their science. So, but we're not really, it's not as much of like, you know, let, let's unpack this particular result, right? And I feel like that's, that's what the word science communication evokes to me a lot of the time is here's some results and now we need to communicate them and digest that particular result for people. We're not doing that at all or at least not very much. And if, we, if, it, if it comes up, it's because it kind of comes up naturally. Be, I would actually honestly be interested in doing a little bit of that more, um, explaining scientific concepts, et cetera, to folks. I think that's a value. I've, I've heard it in some of the interviews that we've done when I've gone back and listened to them. It's, it's, sometimes you just need to ask a guest, well, what do you mean by, of course, I can't think of a concept right now that we've talked about, right? What do you mean by resilience? What do you think about threshold concepts, et cetera, right? For example, but it's never been like something that we know we need to hit in a particular interview. It's like, what does this result mean for folks? Stefan, I don't know if you had any additional thoughts. No, I, I definitely agree with that. 
it's it's more it's really just about building the community with among researchers and less about communicating science to non-academics that's not the goal for us uh, but it does come up that i have to explain why i have a certain belief because i have a certain project which came up with that and therefore i changed my thinking and it led to a process yeah i do think it reflect go ahead this is this is no, go ahead. Well, reflect, I mean, this, the question also prompts me to think about a tension that I have felt in the podcast is, you know, how quote unquote academic do we want to be, right? Do we want to be a podcast? Because you could, you could easily see a podcast like ours kind of being a podcast about academics for academics. And I don't want to be too much in that space. I mean, I think it's, an, it's a safe, we would do that pretty well. But I would be interested in branching a bit more. There's some interviews we've done with, with practitioners, et cetera. And I think that would be a healthy space for us to continue to move. And, and in so doing, also have episodes that are of interest um, to folks that aren't necessarily academics as well. You know, so I would I would love to have. We've also talked about, or maybe <laughs> I can't tell. I don't remember if we've talked about this or I've just talked about it at you because of my own interest. But it's I would love to have like sub series of like, okay, now we have like ten episodes, which is all, they're all practitioners, or these are all folks that work at like Conservation International. We're going to talk to like five to ten of them. I think that's a that could be a really cool direction the podcast could head. And it might be that someone wants to work with us and they want to run those 10 episodes. Like, I think that'd be a really cool way to involve other people in it as well. Um, but that's certainly a tension that I have felt is kind of who is this for? We got our niche, which has been, I think, really effective for us. But it's also like, how do we expand that a little bit? Well, no, I was knowing the audience is a is a really good question. And, and I, I'm going to actually, if you don't mind, Emily, I'm going to put you on the spot again. I mean, first... You know, thinking about so thinking about this question of how our podcast fits in um, the science communication or knowledge mobilization or whatever it is, one of the things that I've sort of been reflecting on is if the goal of research or science is to foster a better understanding of the world, then is there or there is, I'll just make the statement, there is value, I believe, in um, facilitating the telling of stories that help people understand some aspect of the world. And what I like about the podcast and why I, is that while the three of us are sort of curating and I finding the stories, it's not quite the same as if you were reading a paper by the three of us talking about the impacts of COVID-19 on fisheries in 2019 and 2020, right? It's not, we're not so much the middlemen or the middle people, the brokers, the people who are doing the analyzing and the rewriting and the digesting and then the retelling, right? We're still there, but we're trying to be trans, sort of transparent and off to the side and let, just let the tori- story tell itself. And so I think in as much as if us finding any success with the podcast in helping people understand this aspect of the world, then that's how I see it as being, you know, I, I see that as, you know, sort of being a form of science and science communication. But what I, what I'm hoping, Emily, you can speak to is, Emily, you you also spend a lot of time in the world of, you know, how people consume this kind of information, whether through social media or whatnot, and people from, you know, different generations who engage with technology differently. And so I'm curious, if somebody asked you, Emily, how does this, you know, how does this podcast sort of fit into the world of communicating or how people are receiving or hearing science? What, you know, what do you think our niche is? Um, huh. Yeah, you did put me on the spot. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think, I think I also define science communication Michael the way that you did and like I don't know if that's what we do like I don't I yeah like Michael hearing your explanation of like what you define science communication as it made me reflect on what we do and kind of our goals what I think our goals are with our podcast and I don't I don't think it is science communication I think we we do a lot of of storytelling and trying to 
you know, like the way I see it is we've seen all these articles come out in the news and all these headlines about impacts on fisheries and markets, and they're not showing the people behind those stories. And I think like what our podcast does is it brings the personal aspect and it shows like here are the the people behind these numbers and what's actually going on and and the personal realities and that it's, you know, it's, it's larger than, I don't know, than what's being, I think we we're able to get to like the the personal side of things and the nitty gritty. And, and I think it's unique in that, in that way. And I think, I don't know, part of what drew me to working with Phil and the Coastal Roots Lab from the beginning was this focus on knowledge mobilization and reaching audiences outside of academia. Like I'm a, I'm a first gen master's like uh, university student and my, like my parents don't know what I do. And so, but they know what the podcast is and you know, this is a way that I'm able to communicate what I do with them and with people who are not familiar with academia. And so I think, yeah, I think, I think we maybe aren't science communication. I think we're storytellers. And I think that we bring that personal aspect that I think is lost in a lot of like traditional academic mediums, I guess. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I, I guess I have a few things. I would almost a little bit disagree. I, I, I guess I agree in that we are not explicitly a science communication podcast. That wasn't the goal of when we set out. But in thinking about as, as I've been listening to this conversation, I, I actually think that like, I would argue all, all science, and especially like, as we've talked about, like the production of PDFs is storytelling. It is the author narrating a story of what they did and what they learned from that experience, even if it's extremely empirical and dry. Like it's, it's, I mean, you are, you are talking about something that happened and you are trying to communicate a key set of messages, which is also what stories are, is they, they communicate a, a key set of themes or, you know, a, a message, a, a threat, a, you know, something like that. All stories have that kind of key line through them. And that's what we do as, as authors of, sci- of scientific research, I, I would argue. In the case of this podcast, I actually see it as communicating the, 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 process of science, even though we don't say that that's what we're doing. And, and I maybe didn't even realize that that's what we're doing. But so for example, when you write a, a qualitative article and you draw from quotes as, as a piece of kind of your empirical data, that is the bulk of what we do in this podcast. So instead of just a couple of uh, exemplifying quotes that make it into a PDF, and that's where we say like, look at this is what people said. And here's the reasons that we arrived at these conclusions based on these themes that came from the coding. Now we say it's almost like live coding. It's it's saying here's all of the quotes and here is uh, the building of a theme through narration that we then present as an episode, more or less. And you know, and obviously it's much less rigorous in terms of what we're trying to say in each episode. Like the though, you know, we use the I think as as Courtney was talking about, we we do use all of these interviews as data for a a very kind of rigorous approach to research, and and that's kind of to the side of the podcast a little bit. But what what we're showing when we taught when we present these stories with the voices of the people who are living them is very much the the side of science that people don't see, which I think kind of links back to what we've talked about. It's the invisible part of the work that goes into that eventual PDF. And and very importantly to me, it's the real lived experiences of the people who who inform science that we do. And that's that's pretty critical. So I though it isn't explicitly about that as a podcast and as a model of of science communication, it very much is that process of of thinking through data and and tying together important themes that we see arising from these interviews and then presenting that kind of, you know, 
live, uh, well, next to live as with real voices, which is not something you get to do very much in, in uh, like a PDF or some other kind of written product. Yeah, I had a, a thought along similar lines, and we're not a science communication podcast, we're a scientists communicating podcast. And I think there's a, from more of a how is knowledge produced perspective, there's a there's an overemphasis in science on that knowledge is produced by formal methodologies. And there's a huge underemphasis on the informal methods in which knowledge is produced in conversation amongst scientists. And those lunch conversations, those interactions in your working groups, those thoughts that you have when you're running, those all of those things, those have a huge influence on how you, how and why you apply the formal methodologies. And they they are very much guiding and influential in, in what the form, it's almost that those are behind the wheel, steering how you apply the, the formal statistical methods or the interview methods or whatever data collection and analysis methods. And from that perspective, I think the podcasts in general, both of ours and many others are our methodology in trying to make that more transparent, making that more clear as, as a method in which knowledge is produced as a function of social organization. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really great observation, Stefan. I, I think, you know, I, I, when I go back to the, the training that I have on, on how to do rigorous qualitative um, research, you know, so much has to do with really doing the due diligence to understand, and not just from your perspective, but other multiple perspectives, the context in which you're applying a framework or a theory or asking certain research questions. And so, so much of this work we're doing with our, with our podcast is about us learning more so that we can be more rigorous qualitative social scientists, you know, the, to be able to show that you, you, we understand the context sufficiently to apply, you know, to be clear in our application of qualitative methods and our analysis and so forth, you know, the, always circling back to the context is really matters both for and how we know the context in terms of the the knowledge claims we eventually make that it's all it's all wrapped up together and so you know if you don't take this time you have a sort of a very you know there's a lot of danger of misunderstanding or misinterpreting or you know just missing the 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 insights that that are there um yeah i've had been having a lot of conversations with students over the last half year or so about writing up their thesis and what's the, they often have questions and it's also something I think about what, what's the best way to write your methods section. We've kind of come to the conclusion that the most transparent way is the best way to write your methods section. And I think we're losing that mm-hmm. in a lot of high level journals, which don't prioritize the methods up front. And we also take for granted that methods are overly formalized, as I, as I was saying before, and that, mm-hmm. yeah, the podcast from that perspective is, is one effort to make those informal methods more transparent to make the scientific process more transparent and i think it contributes a lot to that or i hope that it can at least make a good contribution to to that aspect yeah i wanted to also like add to that and i i was thinking about this after your question phil but i think like 
in terms of like how this fits in with all of our like academic contributions and other deliverables. There's a like there's a quote in marketing that's people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And I think that this podcast and the people that we speak to every week is like they're very much like the why we do everything else that we do in Coastal Roots and all the other deliverables and the papers and the presentations. Like I think the podcast, like it very articulately says like this is why we do what we do and this is why it matters. And these people are, yeah, are why we, we do this research and this work. So yeah. Me as well. So I've got a couple of thoughts building on those. I mean, one is, when, Hannah, when you were talking earlier about the relationship between well, the role that the podcast production process has and how it relates to the research, I mean, it made me think about, I just wrote in my notes, podcasting as methodology. It almost sounded like this because if, if, why couldn't this kind of thing be a part of, considered to be a part of a research process? I mean, it's very reflexive. It's very reflective. And it certainly influences how the researcher views the stories that they're telling. I mean, I agree that, you know, science or at least good science is storytelling. At the same time, you know, in my PhD, I never took a class called storytelling for scientists. And I think that probably I would have benefited from that. And I know some scientists that also would benefit, you know, to throw out a generic little anonymous critique. So I think part of like what draws me to this podcast is the, is the kind of storytelling that we're able to, to do that feels kind of hamstrung with the traditional format that we fi frequently find ourselves in. I mean, I really do like this idea that there, there isn't necessarily a strong distinction between the podcasting world and the science world, that really you could almost see the, the former as a, as a scientific method. I mean, I'm, that's just a thought that I have that I'm kind of throwing out there, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that that um, occurred to us fairly early on and that, that there was something to be learned about how we are doing research and about how we are engaging with this data through podcasting as opposed to, to you know, the more traditional route that we may have taken with collecting interviews and then uh, engaging with the data. And I, we, one thing we do uh, also do as a part of this process is we all keep an individual journal about um, about the interviews we do, about our own process and experience in putting together episodes and, and creating narrative, finding stories like we, uh, yeah, and, and it's sometimes it's, I think, a little bit of the like, man, this was a really hard interview, or this was a really, you know, it was frustrating to finally connect with somebody, or, you know, yet again, I haven't been able to get into this little fishery that I was interested in. But a lot of it has been a, very much about this kind of this reflexive process of thinking about who we are as the storyteller, who the, the voices are that we are bringing into the podcast, the process of selecting narrative, because inevitably, you are making choices about what to talk about and what what's what themes and storylines are being brought forward by the voices and and you know our interviews tend to cover a lot of ground i find that there there's maybe four or five or six great stories within an interview and we have to select carefully and, and of course we have other considerations there that when someone gives us the time to do an interview we really want to make sure it makes it onto the podcast but sometimes that's a challenge if you already have three or four great themes lined up and that particular interview doesn't really fit into them very well or how many voices can you really feature in one episode without it starting to, to lose a little bit of its uh, authenticity. So those are all choices that we make that are part of the methods of producing the podcast and that we would approach differently if we were doing this as more kind of traditional research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, I'm, while listening to you, I've, I've been trying to also reflect on on where I see this going, you know, I mean, sort of, I completely relate to the this challenge of the perception of what it is we're doing when we do this though so i and that it's not 
research, you know, as an assistant professor, when I was still sort of a probationary appointment in those first three years, I remember receiving a sort of a minority report on my third year review that I had spent too much time doing outreach. And that was with reference to a series of ethnographic short films I had produced with, with communities. And, and I remember, you know, I obviously, I, I saw that for what it was, which was a cultural challenge in a, in a highly interdisciplinary setting where people in positions of power were trained in a very different kind of, you know, I don't want to use, say old school, but a different kind of science, right? And what science was. And, and so I think, you know, if there is a future vision that, you know, there, I also feel like we are experiencing a bit of a turn towards the recognition of storytelling and the power of it in science and also reflexivity and transparency and the social construction and creation of science. And so I think that hopefully, if anything, hopefully this contributes in the minutest part to that turn. And I don't know that like that economics podcast, I, I can't say that I want to see us getting to a thousand episodes, my dear Lord, but, but I do think we have a pretty good run ahead of us that I'm hoping for. And I think we do it as long as the stories are still asking to be told. I think one aspect is to, as you mentioned, Phil, it's to a couple of you mentioned that we've got to bring it in so that it's, it's valued in the academic process more formally. And I think it's difficult to evaluate these contributions, what the value of them is. It's easy to evaluate what generally publish in, impact factor, how many PDFs you have. Uh, there are formal metrics which are standardized across disciplines for assessing those things. And there aren't those same metrics for things like podcasts or other outreach uh, communication contents. And I wonder if it's up to those of us who are engaging in that to think about how we assess the value and to, sh and to think about new ways of, of showing that it adds value to the community to be a part of that process of, of arguing that this type of content can, can add a lot of value. I know it personally has added a lot of value for me, uh, and I assume that uh, it does for others as well to some extent. And yeah, to what, ex to what extent are we responsible for then trying to be those, those actors who, who advocate for how we assess those things into the process? Yeah, it makes me really think that, that one episode we should try maybe a little later on in our run is kind of giving a little bit more of a behind the scenes of, of how we put together what we do and, and reflecting, I think, on where it fits into the world of understanding fisheries and particularly in these community-supported community fisheries, which I think we spend quite a lot of our time focused on. That reminds me of one of my other favorite podcasts. I've become a podcast junkie in quarantine is Planet Money. And I think for their thousandth episode, they just dedicated it to talking about how they do their episodes, like how they run each one, why there inevitably is this obnoxious moment where they say, okay, wait a minute, take a step back, right? So, well, okay, that's cute. But they, they walk it through. And so, I mean, I think, yeah, that sounds like a really neat idea. I would be really interested in hearing an episode like that from y'all too. Yeah. As soon as we have it figured out, we'll, we'll try it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I'm like you, Hannah. I'm not sure how long we really want to be going. It sounds like we're still having a good time, but I, I mean, one question that I have finished a lot of other interviews with that I'd, I'd love to hear from you. And also I think Stefan, it'd be great to hear from you and think about this together is kind of what, what do you see moving forward? Like how has this um, changed how you view, how have reviews of what you want to do with this project changed since you started it and how has it influenced what you want to do with this or other things moving forward? And yeah, I'd be happy to answer that for us too. I suppose I can start. I mean, I'm trying to think about what I actually do want to say. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm caught in a little meta box now where I, this is the first time I've immediately answered my own question being the one who posed it. So again, for me, it's really reinforced how important people are to my work. 
I really got into, I really fell in love with this kind of work when I went, first went to New Mexico for my dissertation work and I talked to a bunch of Hispanic farmers in rural New Mexico and just really loved hearing their stories. And it's really been kind of a intellectual, emotional, intellectual kind of coming home period for me. So in my own mind, I don't have grand designs to kind of change what we're doing. I think it's, it's been really nice to just stay focused on the process. I feel like a lot of the times we get lost in outcomes of like, okay, how many whatever do we have or, you know, what's the next thing? And I think a lot of what's helped sustain my interest in this is just, okay, what do, who do we get to talk to next week? And so for me, it's, it's helped just reorient myself cognitively in that direction, which has felt healthy for me because I also get lost in, okay, what, what's the next output or outcome that I need or want to show the world? So I'm trying to make sure I don't lose that actually. Yeah, in terms of how it interfaces with the other work that I do, I, I think Courtney said something really powerful earlier, which is she was appreciating the way you all are doing things and how it, it's, it feels supported or it's in, engaged in this funding infrastructure, et cetera. I think there is this frustration of the disconnect between this type of activity and the other stuff that we're quote unquote supposed to do. I have felt that tension. And again, it gets back to visibilities and invisibilities, right? Like how is this visible to who, et cetera. But I will say it's been... The feedback that I feel like we've that we've gotten from folks, people, you know, when back from when we were just starting to say like, hey, let's do a podcast, I would say that to people and it's like, oh, that's a great idea. And so I think that's also been very sustaining and help with that issue is that it's, there's been a lot of affirmation about this idea that I think we're still getting. Not that you always want to need that too much, uh, but as a human, it's still nice to get it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. We, in the beginning or maybe the end of every episode, you know, we say that we will be covering the impacts of COVID-19 on the fishermen and women of North America for the foreseeable future. And, and I think when we started this, it was to follow this, this idea of what's changing and what's working and what's not, particularly for these small scale fishers. And that to me is, is a, a pretty clear, we'll tell that story until that story starts to sort of resolve or until it no longer becomes quite so pressing. Uh, or maybe until it just, until the change really slows down to the point where we hit a new equilibrium and there isn't a lot of change to talk about. Um, fisheries always change. So maybe that's a, a pipe dream in terms of <laughs> reaching equilibrium. But I, I think, I, I definitely see us, you know, maybe getting up into the, up to 50 episodes or so over the course of the next year. Um, but, you know, again, this is, this is also a, a project that fits the Coastal Roots project really effectively, but as we've discussed, doesn't really feed into your article count or anything. So we have to, I think for, especially, you know, for myself, I'm a postdoc. I have some considerations. You know, Emily has a thesis to write. You know, we all have kind of demands on our time that don't fit into the podcast. So we have to balance those things. But I think one thing that I'd really like to see for the future of this and, and where I hope we are able to go is to be able to to work toward the next local catch summit. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, local catch is an important partner within Coastal Roots. And it's where a lot of the people that we talk to over and over again, that's where we originally met them and made those those connections. So I'd love to be able to bring a, a, a wrapping up podcast to that next summit, whenever that might be in a, in a year or two from now. And be able to say, you know, this belongs to you. This is a, a series of stories based on your lives and we want, it, it's almost, it's, I almost consider it kind of a, something we do mm. as a um, tribute to the work that's going on in fisheries around North America. It's, it's, it's about that. So as long as it's reasonable to be telling those stories and not a huge burden on the time of the people that we call up every other week or so. <laughs> yeah, I see us continuing to do this. 
certainly through the life of coastal routes, maybe that would be another kind of benchmark in terms of how long we pursue this. I would just like to add to that as well. Like as a grad student, it's been an excellent learning opportunity to kind of been thrown into the deep end here with this podcast. And, you know, we're (laughs) figuring things out as we go, but this trust piece is huge. And like, just, yeah, like, I don't know, just being given so much responsibility was like terrifying at first. And like, what do you guys mean? You want me to take the lead on this? I can't, you know, I can't do this. And, but being given the opportunity and yeah, being thrown into the deep end and having to figure it out and being given the opportunity to, to figure out these narratives and, it's it's been a real big confidence boost i think as a as a student and like i said i mentioned earlier you know i had some anxieties about different interviews and things like that and just yeah really being forced to like address them and overcome them has been a huge learning experience as a student and i think i'm not sure that i would have gotten that through quote unquote like traditional academic outputs else like yeah I guess like in the traditional sense so I think it's it's just been a really unique learning opportunity to kind of like just rapidly figure things out as they're going and this idea of like yeah trust and like being comfortable with each other and it's been really reassuring for me to know to like the people like my supervisors like have this like faith in me to do good work it's been a like real big confidence boost as a student I'd say one big advantage that we've we've had with Mm. doing this work is that because every interview we do for the podcast is also the vast majority are consented in as part of the data set that we'll use for Emily's thesis work and for other other work that we'll do that is kind of fitting more into the PDF production side of things that it almost is like a a recruiting tool in that people are really happy and they understand a podcast, right? You're like, I, I just want to ask you about your fishery, how things have been going, what's changed. And they're very happy. And, and that's something that they easily understand how to talk about that. In my experience, sometimes you go and you say, hey, I'd like to, this is a research project and we'd like to talk. And they're like, well, I don't really know what you want to know. Like, what is this useful to you? So the, the podcast almost gives us a vehicle by which to conduct and recruit participants in research and, and build the relationships that are necessary that, as we discussed earlier, are really hard to build over Zoom if you're accustomed to doing that in the field with people. So in a way, it's, it's almost been kind of having, having, I guess, both sides of that, having the podcast and the research built into it yeah, has been really critical in, in being able to justify some of the time and some of the effort. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a really effective strategy to have synergies across these activities. I mean, again, I could see other people having a lot to learn from you all if they wanted to layer on a podcast as part of their methods. I mean, it could, you could also be really effectively wrapped into like grant proposals, right? Just to think about it in those cases. Yeah. I'd, although I, just for the sake of transparency, this is stuff that we learn about ourselves every time we talk each week. It's, <laughs> I, I won't begin to say that this was some grand plan we had from the beginning. It's, it's definitely happened as we've gone along. And, and that's fortunately... I, you know, I think one thing that we haven't quite talked about, but that I, I think is really important to bring up is that this process of working together on a podcast has really created uh, trust and teamwork and and a, a way to work together that maybe we wouldn't have gotten just to kind of the run-of-the-mill lab work that we normally do. You know, we, I, I would say that we have a pretty close lab. We have meetings each week and, and people have personal relationships in addition to kind of the professional nature and atmosphere of a lab. But the that learning to really have to trust and rely upon one another through the podcast process because we're separate and because we're each doing different chunks of the work and and that has to overlap and we have to really be able to communicate effectively. That's That's been a really cool process that has we've seen dividends then when it comes to doing the research or connecting with additional people within the network to write papers or to work on kind of other projects that have come about because 
of the, the unity that we found through the podcasting process. Exactly. I mean, there is this aspect of trust. I mean, we, like you said, we, we met each other, but didn't know each other that well. And that, that was, that was fun. I, I was excited when we kind of connected about the podcast on Twitter. I was excited that someone was, was interested in that idea and that if someone else is willing to, com- to commit and someone else is willing to put the time and effort in, then I'm, then I'm also willing to reciprocate. And I think that's been nice between us that we're both doing that in a way, which is, I hope, <laughs> I hope from your perspective is also uh, fun and, and, and fair and also just a, a good community, part of the community building process that we also build somehow a relationship to make the, the project work. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one similarity to mention, I mean, so Stefan and I didn't really know each other very well when we started this. I think we had met each other at like one or two conferences you know, the way I put it is that you, you never, you never set off my BS meter. You know, he seemed like a nice guy, pretty reasonable from California, but it was definitely a process, right? Cause you don't, you don't know until you know how it's ultimately going to work. It's kind of like, you know, being someone's roommate is different than being their friend. And so it's like, all right, here we go. We're going to, we're going to move in together professionally a little bit, see how it goes. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to take the step alone. It's hard to, it's, it's good to have someone else who reaffirms your ideas. I think with, with all of the things, it's easier to move forward. Yeah, we absolutely could not do this without all three of us. It would, it wouldn't be possible. Yeah, no, I've, I've thought about this several times. Like I, I wouldn't have done this on my own. I wouldn't have just been like, okay, we need a new podcast. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, you, you need that energy from other people. Yeah, well, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, likewise. I think this was a really good opportunity. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Yeah, it's good to chat and meet y'all. Yeah, Super. you too. Stay safe, stay healthy. Yeah, this was fun. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Finding Sustainability podcast is part of a larger project known as the Environmental Social Science Network. You can find us at essnetwork.net. There you'll find information about the podcast and other projects that we're working on, and you can contact us with any ideas about any of these projects. If you have an idea for who would be a good guest for the show, or you think you'd be a good guest for the show yourself, or if you just want to get involved in some other way, don't hesitate to reach out.